Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 199. Happy New Year to all of you. I'm back from a week in Washington, D.C. Obviously, a lot of stuff is shut down, but we did a lot of walking around the city, did all the monuments and sort of the touristy stuff that you're kind of supposed to do when you go to D.C., but then we ate a lot of food, a lot of food. There's a big Ethiopian population in D.C., and so there's a lot of really good Ethiopian food. There's good Lao food. There's a place called Bad Saint that does Filipino. You can eat really well in D.C. And you probably think of D.C. as the culture or the, the home of politics in the United States. And, of course, you're right. But there's a lot of really great music and art that comes out of D.C. Even just walking around, there are tons of murals everywhere. There's a lot of art that's in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. But there's really great street art all over the place. Unfortunately, the DuPont Underground has been closed because of COVID. But that is uh, one of the railway entrances that has been turned into this sort of street art haven. Uh, so it was a little bit upsetting to not get to see that, but saw a lot of cool stuff, drank a lot of coffee, got to walk historic U Street, so that was really cool. Hopefully by this point you've listened to the episode with Virginia from Ben's Chili Bowl. Now, talking about music, DC, if you go back to the 80s, was a hub of incredible punk music. I mean, some of the bands that you would think of when even hearing the word punk, like Black Flag, even though they started in California, Henry Rollins was a DC guy, uh, Minor Threat, Fugazi. These are bands from DC. And so I linked up with Jim Sa, who is a photographer who documented the punk scene in DC throughout the 80s. And he also produced a documentary, I think it came out in 2014, called Salad Days, about the punk scene in 80s, 90s in D.C. And if you go to Google or kick around and you put in his name, you'll see all these iconic photos that you've likely seen before, again, of Minor Threat, Black Flag, without maybe even knowing that it was him that took those pictures. So he's got a lot of really incredible stuff. He's got a book coming out next year. And it was great to learn about his experiences and his life within the context of the punk scene in D.C. This was a real honor to get to talk to him. Uh, he's a great guy with a great talent. And I, I love doing these regional music episodes. It's really cool for me. So go to the show notes for this episode, as always. And you'll see a link for his website and for his Instagram account. There's also a link to my Patreon account. If you're able to give, that is a subscription-based service with some cool kickbacks. I've been sending out that zine that I did to the Patreon supporters, but I've got stickers and shirts and things from around the world when the world opens back up. All right, folks, enjoy this conversation with Jim Sa. All right, awesome. Well, thank you for doing this. Uh, I'm sorry that uh, these are strange times and we couldn't do it in person, but I appreciate you doing this remotely. Yeah, yeah, I would have liked to have done it, but, you know, things are so bad around here and, you know, I got my family to think about in, in addition to myself and stuff. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. No, I'm uh, I'm happy to be doing this. The The first... I don't know. I think maybe the first show I went to would have been like 99 or 2000 when I was like 13, 14 years old. So, you know, for, for us at that time, looking back at bands from the eighties and, you know, black flag and minor threat, like that's a legendary era. And, you know, your, your photos are documentation of a really legendary era. So, uh, this is really cool for me to get to do. So thank you. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Are you originally from D.C. or the surrounding area? Yeah, I was born in D.C. actually. Oh, okay. Whereabouts? Um, right in uh, Sibley Hospital in, in D.C., in, um, uh, right in the heart of the district. Uh, I lived there till um, I was only about two or three, and then my family moved to the Maryland suburbs, um, just a few miles outside of the, um, over the district line, north in, in Maryland. Ah, okay. And I thought that I saw that your parents had immigrated here from Palestine, is that correct? That is correct, yep. Ah, very cool, very cool. So I got to learn a bit. Yeah, they were both... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Well, what I was going to say was I've been to D.C. a few times throughout my life. I have a family member who lives there, and we were just there for the past week, and I got to learn a little bit more about D.C. than I had known, and it seems to be a pretty different place in 2020 than it had been in decades prior. Uh, So I was wondering what the D.C. that you grew up in was like and what that experience was for you as a child. Yeah, it's funny um, you mentioned that because we had just gone downtown to the new waterfront area yesterday to meet some friends and to have lunch. And uh, it's by the Navy Yard, Mm. um, the uh, military base. And um, I remember going to shows I mean, this is a typical story of gentrification that you can cite any big city, um, whether it be New York or D.C. or um, Los Angeles or wherever. But, you know, I used to go to shows at a club down there and it was just desolate and scary and your cars would get broken into and and stuff. And, um, you know, I went down there yesterday. I just didn't I haven't been down to that area. It's in southeast. I don't really go down there too much, but uh, it was a completely different place. It's uh, totally gentrified. There were just high-end stores and shops and stuff. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, it's just a story of gentrification in one respect. It's, it's nice that it's um, not dangerous anymore, but it's completely, white now yeah you know dc was a 70 almost 75 percent american when in the 80s when i was growing up and going to shows and now it's like you know 30 percent and the areas that were really big for nightclubs and shows the u street area where the black hat is and um the old 930 club used to be more downtown but it's in that neighborhood now uh, you know, I walk, I park my car and walk to a show and you don't see any black people. And that was a completely, that was where the U street, where the riots happened in 68 when yeah. Martin Luther King was killed. And, um, it's, you know, it's just, uh, upper middle-class, you know, yuppies and stuff. So it's very different. It's a very different place. Yeah, a major part of gentrification is rising rents and people get forced out, businesses get forced out. Are a lot of those clubs still in DC, like that date back to the eighties, or are they are they priced out? Most of them were priced out. Most of the clubs from the eighties were are uh the small ones are all gone and have been gone for a long time. A few survive. Um, you know, the 930 Club that was uh, home to punk rock and uh, worked with us as kids because, you know, back before uh, punk rock came around, you had to be 21 to get into any nightclub to play music because of the drinking laws. And, um you know, musicians and bands went to the owners of the 930 Club 
and said, look, we don't want to drink. We just want to have shows. And we started having uh, matinees, punk rock matinees, when the club was dark anyway on a Sunday afternoon. And those were like the best things ever. It's like the, I couldn't imagine a better thing doing as a 17-year-old or 16-year-old, like to go to a show on a Sunday afternoon. And um, they were just, you know, really joyous events. I think it added to the show. The experience of the show was great, but it also made it feel like we were uh, creating something new, uh, something where we had this space and, you know, the, uh, the club made money, uh, people bought sodas and snacks and, you know, whatever the door was, I don't, you know, they split it with the club. So it was kind of a win-win. And, uh, you know, and the 9:30 opened a new club, uh, around 2000, I guess. And it's been a really popular, uh, place for bands. Uh, it's a little more, you know, backed, there's, you know, there's been new owners and they're a big kind of concert. Uh, I wouldn't say conglomerate, but they have several clubs in the area, bigger venues, um, but still cool, still independent. Uh, it's not Live Nation or anything. Um, but the Black Cat is probably the one that, that is still around um, <clears throat> that is the punk rock kind of indie punk rock place uh, owned by Dante Ferrando, which, you know, was in bands uh, in D.C. back in the day. And... That's a great club. That's probably one of my favorites. Um, there's still some smaller bar clubs that do cater to smaller bands, but I'm not sure how many of those are going to survive after after COVID. Yeah. As a as a teenager, what was your your gateway or your entry into like the world of punk and hardcore? Well, it's kind of a, a unique entryway. As a board, uh, a high school student, we were looking for stuff to do on the weekend. And I was into music. I was always in re- very much into music, but I have seven older brothers and sisters. So wow. I uh, was into their music for the most part. And they had good taste. I mean, Beatles, Stones. I had a lot of records in my house, uh, all the classics rock stuff, um, plus some weird stuff. My brother, I had Frank Zappa records that I got into it as a, as a, at a young age. Uh, Lou Reed, for some reason, Street Hassle. Whoops, sorry. Um, for some reason, Street Hassle was in my house. I didn't know who of my siblings were into Lou Reed, but um, I, uh, I had that and I, I played that and you know, other stuff, it's not so good. But, um, but then I went, I was, we decided to go to, um, a midnight showing a Rocky Horror Picture Show at, at our, at our movie theater down in DC. Uh, pretty old classic, uh, Georgetown theater. And, um, and we went and, I have no idea, but Ian Mackay worked there and another guy, Danny Ingram, which was in Youth Brigade and uh, some other early DC bands, he worked there as well. And they would play music before the movie started. And I think Danny like, was the uh, DJ. I'm not 100% on that, but they were playing music and they were playing a lot of uh you know, early punk, 70s punk, uh, The Stranglers, The Damned, um, some American stuff, but a lot of a lot of British stuff. And uh, I just was like, what's this? What's this music? Like, this sounds great. And then, you know, immediately went out to the record store and, and bought some singles. And then the guys at the record store are like, oh, you like punk rock? You know, there's a big punk 
playing right here in DC, you know, there's bands and I'm like, for real, you know, and then I found out about Minor Thread and Void and Faith and it was about 1982 at the time. And, uh, yeah, then I found those, I bought records from those bands and then, uh, just dived into it. When I found out that those bands were playing shows, then we didn't, we started going to every show and we didn't miss a show for <clears throat> a couple of years. Excuse me. <clears throat> yeah. I think, um, like civilians in the world of, of punk music, you know, everybody's got their, their term for like normal people, I guess, uh, likely have heard obviously like of, of black flag of, of minor threaded, you know, or have like some ancillary knowledge of like, Oh, those are punk bands. Uh, but I think, you know, a lot of people will think about New York or they'll associate Boston with, with hardcore bands. But I don't know if a lot of people are aware of like the really rich history that DC has. Um, so your access to those bands and like their pre precursor bands, like um, you said 82. So maybe this is like just after like Teen Idols and, and SOA and stuff like that. But uh, you were really in, in the heart of like something really special going on on the East Coast there. Yeah, yeah, there was a, <clears throat> there was a, I missed a little bit of the first wave, um, you know, SOA, Teen Idols, uh, the DC's Youth Brigade. Um, but yeah, I came in near in the middle of 82 and, you know, one of my favorite bands, Minor Threat, was still kicking hard and, uh, and Faith was really good, and Void was amazing. Those were some of the, my favorite shows I remember seeing. Some precursors to, you know, uh, like Brendan Canty and Dee um, were in a band called Insurrection. It was like a precursor to some, you know, their bands, Fugazi and, and Rites of Spring and, and stuff like that. Um, it was... People do think of, you know, New York, L.A., Boston for, uh, you know, L.A. had a, a real great punk scene even a little earlier in the late 70s. The Germs and X and, and those bands started. But I think D.C. has gotten more respect over the years. I mean, Discord's tagline was always putting D.C. on the map. And it's kind of true. In a way, I mean, I, it was it was a tongue in cheek, you know, tagline. But uh, they, I think, people really respect what came out of here, and um, and it was a unique scene because it was a, a political city, and all the bands had, uh, you know, some of their parents were like diplomats or worked in the government, so people were a little more educated about politics and wrote, uh, you know, interesting songs. I think it's funny that when I interviewed Jay Maskus for Salad Days, you know, he's from the Massachusetts area. Uh, I said, what was, in your opinion, when you were a kid, what was the difference between like Boston hardcore bands and DC hardcore bands? And he said, DC bands were better. Or were good. I think that <laughs> DC bands were good. So, I mean, I don't know. SSD Control and some of those Boston bands, you know, were 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 popular. But um, but people did notice it back then. So many people told us stories for Salad Days, uh, the movie that I co-created uh, with Scott Crawford. Um, the uh, they would go into a record store and they would hear them playing minor thread or something and they'd say who is this band and they're like oh it's a discord band i mean bands are really related to labels back then you know sst discord it was like you liked bands on a label not you know you would buy things from a band you might not have ever heard just because they were on a, a label and that happened a lot in dc people would say you know what is this and they like guy at the record store would say it's a, uh, it's, you know, a discord band, minor threat, or, and then they, people told us that they would just send money to discord 
and send say send me whatever you got new, whatever single you know here's five bucks and um and you know it it remains to this day much to the credit of uh Ian Mackay for just keeping it not only releasing new bands but keeping the archives up and, and keeping it alive and keeping this stuff available. I, I was going to ask about um, how or sort of, you may maybe started to answer it there, but I'll ask this in another way. Uh, the, the Foo Fighters is one of the biggest like rock bands in the world, right? But Dave Grohl at one point was DC based and was playing in Scream. Uh, there's all the aforementioned bands that we've talked about. They're HR from Bad Brains. All these like incredibly talented and then eventually influential people and bands coming out of this pretty small city. Do you think that it was the influence of like the proximity to politics? And there's also all these colleges as well. Like is it, was it sort of a reaction to that type of a, a culture in the city that helped to like foster this scene there? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a combination. It's it's definitely that. But then the fact that DC was uh in decline in the 80s, there was uh an epidemic of homicides, uh crack cocaine was wrecking communities. So everyone that worked for the government just got out at five o'clock in the was dead at night you know there was no very little nightlife there was a certain clubs there was a, a big gay club um there was a, a couple new wave clubs where people would go to dance and stuff but they were in georgetown or in you know more historically popular nightlife wealthier neighborhoods um the fact that the city was dead at night gave, gave us uh, a lot of opportunity. And there was, uh, there was this club DC space, which is long gone, but was a great club that had music and just all sorts of cultural things like book, uh, like readings from authors and Jim Carroll read there and all sorts of stuff. Um, but these people could exist. These places could exist with low rent because they were, the city was, no one wanted to rent these spaces and, and it was dead. So we had uh, it, the scene thrived because the, the, you know, people could live down there too for cheap. And uh, there was even some squatting going on and whatnot. So I think, I think it was a perfect storm to make a scene uh, rise up and really be vital mm -hmm. just because we had, we had the people and the creativity and then we had the places to, uh, to have shows and the, and to, uh, even art shows, I would have photography shows, places. There was all these um, little places to show art or have shows in D.C., which are, you know, all gone because they were priced out. You know, punk music is something, again, in 2020, that's a lot more normalized and, you know, even commodified and commercialized. But I'd imagine in the 80s it was seen as pretty revolutionary and still very alternative. Uh, what, what were your parents thinking about your involvement in this world? Well, as I mentioned before, I was the last of eight kids. So uh, um, they were, they were fairly hands off with me because, you know, I was, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that they're, you know, uh, didn't provide, you know, I mean, they were, they were concerned about if, if I was out late or, or where I was, but 
the eighties, you know, were very different in that, you know, I would just, uh, even as like a middle schooler and stuff, I would just, you know, nowadays everyone knows where their kids are every second of the day with the cell phones and stuff. But I would be out all day on my bike with my friends. They have no idea where I was or what I was doing, but I come, you know, just as long as you're back by like six o'clock or something. And then when I got older and went to shows, it was sort of similar. None of the shows were that late at night. So if I was coming in really late as a teenager, that might've had a problem, but wasn't really doing that that much. And they didn't really bother me uh, as far as, you know, I mean, if I told them where I was going, they'd probably say, you know, oh, it's dangerous down there at night. You shouldn't go there. But they didn't really even ask so much. So, and I was, uh, you know, I was into the clothes and stuff, but not as much as some people. Like I just, um, I, I had long hair, which my parents didn't really like that much, but everyone was cutting their hair in the punk scene. And I just uh, kept my hair the way I liked it because I kind of figured, you know, this is an aside, but they, uh, but I just thought that punk rock was about doing what you want and not conforming to things. So everyone had short hair and I had long hair, um, you know, people in my high school equated long hair with being a hippie. And even though I didn't do drugs, you know, they called me Quaalude. Oh my God. Um, so, so then I go to the punk rock scene and I got this long hair, but I don't want to cut it. And I'm like, I don't want to conform to anything. And uh, I really didn't get any abuse from anyone uh, which was good, which is the way it should be for having long hair. Um, I do remember a funny story where I was kind of thinking about this because I was standing out. I, the first couple of shows I went to, everyone had short or shaved heads and I had hair down to my like shoulders. And then uh, I went to see okay, one of the early shows. I think it was a, it was a matinee at the old 930 club. And I saw this guy in the crowd with long hair, like even longer than mine. And I, I said, all right, that's cool. There's someone like, I'm not the only one in here. And then, you know, I didn't know anyone then in the scene, like in, in any of the bands at that time, because it was, I just got into it. But then I realized that the guy I saw was John Stabb and he got on stage and, and played. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's, <laughs> that guy's the most punk rock motherfucker ever. Like he's not only got long hair and doing what he wants, but he's in the band, you know? So then I was like, fuck it. I'm like, I'm leaving my hair long. And, and, uh, and so that was a good moment in the whole, just being accepted into the whole, mm. whole scene. I got off the track there a little bit. I don't know if I answered your original question. No, I think you did. Um, how long into, into going to shows, did you start uh, shooting bands? Like, do you remember the the first show that you took pictures? Yeah, almost immediately. I saw, I think my first show was um, Minor Thread, GI, and someone else um, at Maryland University. Uh, and it was in, I could probably tell you, not that it's super interesting, but i probably tell you the exact show. Oh, cool. um, but I didn't take a camera to that one because I really didn't know. It was my first one. I didn't really know what to expect. But then, you know, once I saw it and was like, oh, this is like intense. And um, I wanted to start taking photos immediately. So my next pretty much the next shows that I went to at the 930 club and, uh, and all sorts of little places. There was a place called uh, space Two arcade, which was like a restaurant uh, with a arcade in the back. And they would rent out the back room, which for shows and there was a million little, little places like that. Um, 
so then I, then, you know, I was in high school at the time. I was taking a lot of photos in my high school class and really getting into it. And, um, and then I just started taking my camera to, to every show. Eventually it, it would appear at least to me that, um, you know, you became sort of accepted by, or maybe even like befriended a number of these bands because you were on stage for a lot of these shots. Like how long did it take for you to, I don't know if receive recognition is the right word, but sort of like become part of the community to where it's like, oh yeah, this is the guy who's going to be on stage taking pictures. Yeah, pretty, pretty quick because I wanted to be involved. I wanted to get my stuff uh, seen. That's why I ended up starting my own fanzine and um, self-publishing the stuff. But bands came to me pretty early on, a marginal band. Uh, I had a, a picture on the inner sleeve of their first, one of their records, I think their first record. Um, seven Inches, people, I would, you know, let people use pictures. I would give uh, pictures to Discord for uh, advertisements. Um, for their bands in like Maximum Rock and Roll and, and magazines like that. So I did get to be known and and I did befriend a lot of these people. Um, you know, uh, there's this picture, which I don't know if I can, uh, it's like an, it's an early, it's a punk rock matinee and uh, there's just all these people that I was just, you know, starting to meet, like in the crowd, there's uh, Alec Mackay, Brendan Canty, Chris Ball, uh, uh, so many people that were in bands. And so it was this huge community that I just got into and really felt at home at. And, uh, you know, and I'm still friends with and collaborate and do things with a, a lot of these people, you know, to this day, like 30 some years later. Wow. There are a lot of, um, what I think of as like iconic photos of Henry Rollins that, that you've taken where I don't know if they're like bicycle shorts or swim trunks, but it's like, it's always wearing, it's when he had the long hair and it always looks like wet and wild. And there's videos from this time and also interviews and stories and stuff from the time where it seemed like he had this kind of adversarial relationship to the crowd. And even if you read some of this stuff, like he was like angry at the crowd and there's videos of like people hitting him and him hitting people, people just like throwing shit. Um, I'm wondering if you were like in the middle of that at all and experienced any of that when you were on stage taking these pictures. Yeah, I don't, I've seen that stuff too. And I've seen, you know, there's a popular video out there where, you know, Henry and uh, a guy in the front of the audience is just like uh, yelling at each other and taunting each other. And then Henry, Henry ends up just like humble his face like just with a jackhammer like it's pretty it's very violent and unsettling but because Henry was I mean I don't know this is just my thought this, I don't know the veracity of it but it's my impression that since Henry was from DC and was good friends with so many people like best friends with Ian and, and just you know everyone he grew up with that he was black flag was always welcome with, you know, open arms. And I saw him, uh, play they, them play in a, in the church that his parents got married in and stuff. So it was really like, uh, I know he moved to LA so young and, and, you know, and black flag is a, you know, an LA band, but, um, he was, I, I never experienced, any of that. It was a joyous thing. There wasn't any animosity with the audience or I don't, I saw them probably three or four times in, in DC in the 80, 
And they, it was always just a, a great high energy community like experience. And there was no animosity to the audience. I think that was something that ex- they experienced uh, in other places. I mean, LA was always kind of uh, violent, more violent than DC. And uh, um, I don't know. That's my take on it. Ah, okay. I mean, you've likely been to hundreds, possibly thousands of shows at this point. Um, it's hard to pick like, oh, well, what was the best ever? Um, but in my mind, like I can think of some shows living in New York that like really stand out to me in my mind. And, you know, there's like legendary videos online. Like there's this uh, Fugazi video of them playing Waiting Room that you've likely seen or maybe even shot yourself that's like, the one that like most people think of if they think of a show or a video documenting them. Um, when you think back to this time, are there any shows in particular that really stand out to you in your memory as like being the most memorable? Yeah. Yeah. A few, um, minor threat at the nine thirty club. Uh, the one that was videotaped by, and that they put, they released a video on, uh, that show was, was really great. Uh, I just pretty much loved all their songs and knew all of them by heart. And, uh, my friend is stage diving in that video, like so much. It's just, you know, uh, it was a great show. Um, I liked Minor Threat's last show a lot. People say when we interviewed the band for the movie, like a lot of them said, "Oh, that that show sucked. Nothing sounded right and and stuff." You know, I know bands are more critical of themselves than the audience, so I didn't. I thought it was a a, a good show. Um, Dead Kennedys um, at the. Uh, Landsberg Center. It was a show that uh, almost got shut down by the fire marshal, and they, the bands, you know, negotiated with a with a guy. It was just a real communal experience, and I love that band too. Um, one that really stands out for a number of reasons is um, Fugazi in Berlin, like. Um, I was traveling uh, in in Europe, and we were seeing their their flyers up different places that they were playing in Czechoslovakia or or uh, wherever. But it was always a few days past or a week past. We always missed it, and um, we were we got to Berlin and we were walking to this hostel or this like uh, squat people told us that we could probably stay at and we started seeing these flyers and weren't really paying much attention to them because we were seeing them all over Europe but then we read that it was like tonight the show was going to be that night and we you know we obviously went and the backstage area was actually outside in a gated uh like a fenced in area so we walked up to the place and we're like, hey, and they're like, what the fuck? Like, what are you doing here? And we're like, well, you know, we're, um, we're coming to see the show. And it was because it was to a foreign audience, um, they they stopped playing a lot of the, you know, quote unquote classic songs in D.C., like Waiting Room and Bad Mouth and some of those songs off that early EPs and stuff. They they would mostly play newer stuff and sometimes they would bring those out, but because it was a, a foreign audience, they played a, a lot more old songs since those people don't get to see them all the time. And, and it was, just, it was in the former East Berlin. It was right in this, uh, kind of this big tent that was just, you had to go through the Brandenburg gate to like get to this place. And, um, 
it was just a great, great show uh, musically. Um, it's on their um, on the Fugazi uh, live series. They have a pretty decent recording of it. But years later, I, I talked to Ian about that. I was like, that show, you know, I was showing him pictures of it. And he was like, yeah, amongst the band, we, we kind of feel like that was maybe our best show ever. Like maybe one of our best shows or, or our best show ever. They, the, the band looks at that as one of their best shows. And just through total coincidence, we happened to be there. And even if it, they didn't consider it one of their best, I mean, it still was a great show. And I got, you know, really nice pictures. And uh, so that one's definitely up there. Maybe my top punk rock show. That's wild. Wow. Yeah. Um, Can you tell me about the, I've seen you, uh, you have some photos of like the Discord house. Is that essentially like where the label was run out of? Like, I, I don't know if they also had shows there or anything like that. Yeah, it was a house where uh, Ian lived and Jeff Nelson lived and ran the label out of it. Uh, it was uh, a house in Arlington, Virginia, and uh, they would, uh, you know, Amy Pickering was uh, worked there and Cynthia Connolly, and they would, yeah, do everything there. They would, uh, they would, they would record the music usually at inner ear and but they would do the art, the uh, packaging, distribution, everything out of that house. And uh, then when it got a little bigger, they uh, got a space right across the street. It was it's this warehouse space right, it's right behind a 7-Eleven. And it's just a big warehouse. And that's when they started Discord Direct because um, they didn't, they grew out of the house, you know, so... They um, they have that, and they still have both. Um, you know, when I Ian has been, I have a book coming out next year of of photo, you know, music photography, and I've gone over there a few times uh, for Ian to help me uh, edit and and organize, and and he's real good at IDing photos and stuff, so. Uh, he still goes there, you know, uh, he doesn't live there anymore. He has a house in, in the district, but still goes there most days of the week, uh, works on things. Uh, mostly he, he works on the archives and, and, and stuff. And then he has employees over at Discord Direct filling orders and, uh, and things like that. So it's very much still alive. Uh, they would host bands. Like well, a lot of bands I interviewed for my fanzine back in the day, I would do it at Discord because they would stay there, and uh, so it was just kind of like a band house and a and a record label and everything. Um, it's nice that he was able to end up buying the house, uh, you know, because they rented, of course, back in the day. But um, so it's not nice that it's still still there and still very much the same as it ever was. Um, you know, have you digitized that zine? Like, is there any way that people can still see that? Yeah, there's, um, I don't know how much of it is online, but there's a, a, a fanzine archive out of, uh, the university of Maryland college park that a guy, John Davis, uh, which was in on a Q and not you and, uh, a bunch of other DC bands. Uh, curate and he he scanned both the issues of zone five which was my first fanzine which was a photo zine mainly photos and some interviews and then a subsequent kind of more pop culture magazine i did called unamas um in in the 90s and he digitized them and and have them in this archive i think they can be I think they can be viewed. I can send you a link if you're interested. Um, yeah, that'd be awesome. Look into that. Yeah, you know, I I have this fear that with the push to have 
a lot of you know music on streaming services um, that we're gonna lose out on a lot of stuff things like like radio recordings and live stuff that people now either they have actual physical copies of or they have like on an external hard drive somewhere. Um, but in my small way, I get to talk to a lot of people in some smaller scenes. I've done an episode in, in Tampa. I mean, I guess I wouldn't call San Diego small, but I did an episode about San Diego. Um, there was a, a venue in Alabama that I got to go to once that felt very special to me called uh, Cave Nine. And there's a, a doc about that. So that stuff makes me really happy. Um, and when I was young, like there weren't a ton of like real, well, there weren't a ton of punk documentaries, but even like really good ones. Um, when I was young, like we watched like the decline of Western civilization, which I, th- I think was the 80s, like came out in the 80s. But, um, you know, you, you've done, you've participated in a really good and, you know, t- in my mind, successful documentary documenting a scene. Um, how did that, come about and, and and why did you feel you know the need and desire to do that project yeah it really wasn't a conscious effort in that I didn't say uh, I'm gonna this scene is cool and I'm gonna document it so uh you know for posterity I just was so into it um, that I couldn't, I couldn't not document it. You know what I mean? It's like I was into photography and, and I was loving that and feeling creative around it. And then shortly thereafter, I discovered this music and community that I find really creative and, um, just, I found an, an, I found my people, I guess. And, you know, friends would tell me, you know, don't, you know, don't take your camera this time just to enjoy the show, you know? And sometimes I wouldn't take my camera, but I wouldn't enjoy the show because I would be seeing things that I, you know, I really wanted to photograph. I'd be like, Oh, Oh, the band's really good tonight. Or, Oh, the light is better in this club. I, you know, I could really be doing stuff. So I really, I was, I was compelled to, um, to document it and to participate in it and, uh, to take photos. And I guess I just took my photography really serious even then because, I ended up making it my career. Um, a lot of people I know that took pictures back then, they're like, oh, I don't know where those negatives ended up. They were, I think my mother threw them out or um, or whatever. But I just took it real serious. I didn't know I was going to uh, be a photographer for the rest of my life and videographer and stuff. But I, I did know that these should be taken care of and preserved. Even at the time when I, I had no idea that 30 years later, I'd be putting a book out of this stuff and getting a lot of positive response from things I post online. And, uh, you know, I, I organized the stuff by bands and files, uh, even back then. And I still, have them all wow. in those files. And <laughs> That's a lot. I, yeah, I mean, it's like, um, Ian said something interesting to me while we were working on this book. I was debating whether to put photos from bands that I shot in the 90s. Like, I have some good photos of the Beastie Boys from Madison Square Garden. It was a pretty seminal show uh it was like their return to the garden and it was sold out and but i was hired to shoot that show by nme the uh, british music publication and you know it was back when the music industry had money and 
you know, me and a writer were flown up from DC and put up in a hotel in New York and gave him tickets to the show and stuff. And he was like, <clears throat> he's like, why include the Beastie Boys? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, there was a cool show, a cool shot. They were a good band. Like, and he's like, why don't you only include bands that you had to take photos of? And like, it really made me think it's like, it's, it's true. Like I didn't, I got paid. I was already like a professional photographer by that time. And like all the shows that I saw before that I just were, like I said before, compelled to, to shoot. Um, I think there's, there's something about those photographs that, it, my intention comes through in them that I was that I would have rather have been I wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else like I like there was so many I can't believe the amount of shows like I'm I'm IDing all these photos and a lot of them are you know 83 like there was a year where I didn't miss a show you know I mean I have so many negatives from just that year. And then, um, you know, I don't have a lot of stuff from like the scene sort of died a little bit after minor thread broke up and it got a little, you know, people from the suburbs that didn't really have much to do with it. Uh, you know, started, I mean, I was from the suburbs. I'm not knocking people from the suburbs, but I'm saying jocks and stuff from the suburbs started going down and just, wanting to slam dance and hurting people. And, and then that spawned the whole revolution summer thing, which was very short lived. It was only a summer, you know, and, and uh, maybe eight months total. A lot of those bands didn't survive, but I, I sort of got out of the scene and I never got a, out of music or DC music, but I, uh, you know, I was in my early twenties. I had a different job and a girlfriend and I just didn't, I didn't actually go see a lot of those revolution summer bands. Like, you know, I never saw rights of spring. I mean, they only had a handful of shows and some of them, they even tried to keep secret because they didn't want, you know, these infiltrators, uh, these people that just wanted to come and, and slam dance and stuff. So, I mean, I had friends that were going to those and telling me, oh, you should be, you should be doing this or coming down. But, you know, I think I didn't see Embrace either in short-lived band between Minor Thread and Fugazi. Um, but I was compelled early on to, to, you know, I mean, I see my kids sometimes the extent they, they, they go to shows and sometimes I think it's crazy. Like Jasper, my older son came down just recently came, took a bus down from Philadelphia where they live and, and saw a show and then took a bus back. It was like, it sounds grueling to me, you know, like a, a 30 hour thing, but I did the same thing. I mean, I drove up with friends to see stiff little fingers in New York saw the show and drove back like right after, you know, I mean, I, and I don't, I never regretted it. I mean, I'm glad I would regret it now if I had, I not been stiff little fingers um, at that period in their career, you know? So to answer your question, it's the, it's, it's been like, I was, I was just compelled to do it and, and I, I, I could not do it. And it just worked out that I kept the, all the stuff intact. And, um, and I did end up documenting, I took a lot of pictures of the audience too, cause they were a big part of it, the community and stuff. So there's a lot of pictures of, uh, the, the rooms and the people and the faces and the dancing and stuff. It's, it is a pretty good document of, of DC punk scene at a, at a certain time. Did you have any formal training or were you just like a kid learning as he went? Yeah, I, I was at that time I was just a 
kid taking a high school photography class, yeah. um, there were assignments and stuff. So I was learning how to take pictures, develop pictures, develop film. Um, I did follow up in college. I did go to college for photography. Um, but I basically just, I went to a community college, which was, had a much better photography program than the state school. I ended up, I started going Maryland university, just figuring they're going to have stuff I want to take, um, being a stupid kid and not researching the college as, uh, as much as I should have. I realized they didn't have any photography courses and ended up taking radio, television, film. Cause that was the closest thing they had, which was good. But then I transferred to this other school that had a more robust photography department and I didn't do the whole degree. I just took every photography course that they offered. And, um, and then I was going to continue um, with the education, but then I started going on interviews and I got something published really early on in the, in uh, the Washington post and, uh, and a lot in the city paper, the more, the free weekly paper that, you know, it's kind of more of the underground arts paper and then I started getting jobs and stuff. So then I was just like, all right, I'm just going to make a go at this. And it's been my career uh, ever since. Do you have any sense for what punk and hardcore is like in DC, you know, today? I, I was researching before I came and I found some, some pretty good young bands, uh, like politically minded, a band called the Iron Cages, um, a band called uh, Stuck Pigs, I think they're called. But when I'm looking into these bands, it's like they're, you know, around two years and they're gone and they have like a, a band camp page, but I couldn't get in contact with anybody. Like it was really difficult to do. Do you have any sense of like if there's a, a vibrant, thriving scene there right now or if, if things have like really drastically changed over time? Um, it has changed, but there, there still is like my, my kids are, um, 21 and 23 and they've been in bands, uh, a lot of their, you know, growing up a lot of their younger days. And my one son is, uh, is a drummer and, uh, takes music. I mean, he goes to school for music and, and music hopefully it'll be his career and stuff he takes it it's it's not a hobby um but he was in a band that played out a lot and and so was my my other son and they would they would be on bills with other bands like hardcore bands and and uh there is a vibrant scene of all sorts of music still going on in dc um there was this one band that played uh, the basement of this church, uh, St. Stephen's, which I had seen a bunch of shows at, and they were a good, uh, they were a good hardcore band. I mean, they were DC style hardcore. Uh, the singer was just uh, insane. You know, he was just, he jumped in a, trash can at one point and like stood up with it on his head and all the trash came out. And like, I was just, it made me, I'm not like big on nostalgia. Like I don't think about the days that I was in the scene as being the good times or, 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 I mean, there was a lot of good bands at that time, but there's still a lot of good bands and, and, and watching those guys just, you know, made me, uh, I don't know, just made me uh, warm inside, you know? I mean, it was just, uh, it was really, it harkened me back. It brought me right back um, there. And there's this band, there's a bunch of bands. Some people told us when we made Salad Days that we should, uh, we should have been, you know, included some bands now. Like, it's it's not that, um 
not that we ever said, you know, hardcore uh, or DC punk rock died in the, uh, you know, in 1990 or something. Like we, we didn't say that at all. We just, the movie was about a decade. And then we gave a little nod to what came after, you know, with the, with the popularity of Nirvana and, and stuff like that. But it was just, it was just about that time. And, but there's a bunch of bands. I don't know if they're still around. There was a band called Coke Bust, um, which was really kind of popular. And that guy was very active. I can't remember his name right now, but that might be someone if, if he's still around, I'm sure he's probably still making music that, um, would probably be willing to talk to you. Ah, cool. So, uh, what's next for you, Jim? I, you mentioned the book, which sounds really awesome. Like when can people expect that or any other projects you're working on? Um, yeah, uh, the book has been keeping me busy. It's, we want to get it printed by the fall of 2021. So pretty, I mean the spring, I mean, um, so pretty soon, uh, I'm on the, it's being designed now and I'm still kind of, I can't step up like looking at stuff and tweaking stuff and, and adding stuff. I'm hoping that the publisher and designer isn't, aren't getting annoyed with me, but, um, yeah, it's a lot of work. I'm IDing the pictures. I did interviews with people. My idea was not to do the normal thing where I talk to people about anecdotes or remembrances from shows and stuff. I, I decided to make it more about the intersection of music and photography. Um, so I talked to artists and musicians about how, if they're visual artists, how the are inspired by music and, and vice versa. Um, talked about my work a little bit with, with people. I interviewed a, you know, a, a fellow photographer that was inspired by my work. Uh, Ian Mackay did an interview with. Um, uh, Shepard Ferry, kind of oh, famous cool. artist uh, that uh, he's very influenced by music and by punk rock music. Uh, so uh, it's very, it should be a very interesting and unique book. And so that's been keeping me busy. I did work on a film um, about Cream Magazine, uh, which was a popular magazine in the 70s, like second to Rolling Stone, but it was it wasn't as corporate. It wasn't corporate at all. Like Rolling Stone was, it was gritty, dirty. They covered, uh, punk and noise and, and different things. And, uh, I was a director of photography on that. I just shot it. Scott directed it. The same guy that directed South all days. So that was a lot of fun. That, that, um, was the last big film I worked on. Scott's uh, doing a film on uh, the band DOA now, uh, specifically about the singer who's like uh, into politics uh, in Canada now. He's like a council, he's on the, he's a council member or something. So I've been, I'm probably, if COVID lightens up and we can travel at all, he lives in Canada, you know, so I might help him with that. There's a lot of things. Uh, plus my freelance business, which has kind of gotten hit by COVID. Uh, I do have a job doing photography and video for a big labor union, which uh, is my, my day, you know, my primary source of income at this point. Um, so that keeps me busy. Well, I'm going to link and everyone knows this. They can just go to the the podcast app. They're listening to this in and there will be a direct hyperlink to your website, uh, to uh, Instagram and stuff like that. So people can find you and find out more if they don't already know who you are, but know of bands like minor threat, they're going to be happily surprised to see like, Oh yeah, I know that picture of Ian, like in a sea of people. Wow. Jim took that. Um, so uh, I'll send everybody yeah. in that direction and, uh, that'd want, be great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I want to say thank you, Jim. 
you know, this isn't a podcast that's primarily about, um, you know, punk and hardcore, but it's something that if I can sneak it in to a location or have a conversation or use the platform to have a conversation that I'm really interested in with someone that, uh, I think is, uh, really great and doing really cool stuff, I take advantage of that. So uh, I want to say thank you so much for doing this. Uh, it was a, a real treat yeah. to get to chat with you. Yeah, it was my pleasure. That is a wrap on episode 199 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much to Jim. This was a really cool conversation for me. Um, love doing these regional music and regional punk episodes. So it was awesome to hear like from the source from the guy who was documenting it at the time. Really cool for me. Cool to put out more DC stuff too. I'm hoping to do more of these like sort of weekend and week trips to bring you some content from different places around the East Coast of the US until things start to permanently open up here. Hopefully the vaccine helps out and we'll be back to normal at some point this year. Thanks for sticking with me, Voyagers. As always, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you all very, very soon.